So today, before I wanted to get started, well, first, I'm Tony. I'm one of the pastors at Mountain View Community Church. I'm really thankful for you guys having me here this morning. And I wanted to begin by wishing Pastor Ken happy birthday. It is his birthday today. Yeah. So I, I, I don't see him in here, but I assume he's turning 25. Is that, you guys who know him, is that right? 25? Anna? 25. Good. Um, so according to the internet, which we all know is 100% right all the time, uh, in Hungary, the country, they celebrate birthdays by going up to the person whose lucky day it is, and they pull on their earlobe. And they do so because they're wishing them that they live so long that their ears eventually reach down to their ankles. So I'm going to celebrate Ken's birthday today by going and tugging on his, on his earlobe, and I hope you do the same. If you know me, you know that I really like books. I love books. Everything about them. The, the size, they're the absolute perfect size. They fit right in my hand. It's just wonderful. The smell, like the smell of an old book, they should make a candle that's old book smell. It's fantastic. Uh, everything about them, the way they look on a the shelf, they're just beautiful. I love, love books. Um, so I like to look periodically at the bestseller lists. A lot of newspapers have bestseller lists, the books that are selling the most copies for a given time period. If you go on Amazon, it has them ranked by theme or whatever, uh, by how many books they've been selling. And there are usually a, a couple different kinds of books on there. One is the, the book that's just a fad. It's going to be there. Uh, it's very popular, sells a lot of books, but in five years, nobody is going to even care that this book exists. Nobody's going to even remember it was written, but it was on the bestseller list. Sometimes books are on there for a long time, month after month, sometimes over years, but eventually they fall off it. And if you were to Google what's the best-selling book of all time, according to the source, there's all kinds of different books that they say, different measurements that they use, but the book that is really sold the most of all time, and I think we know this, it's the Bible. No book has sold more than the Bible, all across the globe, year in, year out, the Bible has been sold more than any other book. According to people who estimate these things, they say about six billion copies of the Bible have been sold or distributed. That's a lot. The Bible's been read more than any other book ever written, but that also means the Bible has been more misunderstood, ignored, and rejected than any other book ever written. Look around America today. Never has a Bible been so ubiquitous. There's Bibles are everywhere. Go in any, just about any store, you can buy a Bible, and it's in any kind of translation, in a King James Version or in a version that's more for today. Right? There's all kinds of, you can buy any kind of Bible that you want, different styles. It's on your phone. And yet, Bible literacy, the knowledge that we have of the Bible and what's in it, with each generation is rapidly decreasing. It's becoming less and less. With each generation, we know less about the Bible than we previously knew. Or take, for example, the most rapidly increasing religious group in America is not some Protestant denomination. It's not some other kind of sect. It's actually a group known as the nuns, people who don't believe in a God of any kind. Maybe that's you this morning. If that's the case, welcome here. We're glad that you're here. But maybe you're here, sitting here and you saw the sign 
a friend invited you, you live in the area, and you're sitting here thinking, is the Bible true? Can I trust it? What is this book about? And what can this ancient book possibly have to say to me in the year 2018? Does it have anything to say? I think these are important questions. And I think the answer to every one of them is yes. And that's what I'm going to talk about this morning. So first, I want to start with the very first one. Is the Bible true? Can we trust it? Is it reliable? Yes. Yes. The Bible is true, is reliable. We can trust that what it says actually happened. And there's a lot of evidence for the reliability, for the truth of the Scripture. Secular evidence. You go using archaeology, using science, using history. There's all kinds of ways you can prove things in the Bible actually happened to the point where even secular scholars would say, yeah, pretty much on the whole, the Bible is a fairly reliable book. Now, I especially think so. And there's a lot of ways we can talk about it, but I want to focus on the life of Jesus in the early church, so the Gospels. So who writes these Gospels? Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. Who are the authors? First, you have Matthew, one of the 12 disciples. You have Mark, who is a very close co-worker with Peter, one of the apostles. His main source in writing his gospel. You have Luke, who is a doctor, and he's all into gathering up evidence and gathering up sources and using that as the basis for writing his work. So he even says it. He's using this from eyewitness testimony. And you have John. John was one of the 12 disciples. So what you have in all of these, they're eyewitnesses. This is eyewitness testimony. Excuse me. Uh, Eyewitness testimony. This isn't some oral tradition passed down uh, after generation to generation to generation. This is where it's some kind of elaborate game of telephone. This is... I, this is based on the testimony of eyewitnesses. These people were there. They saw Jesus' love like no one had ever loved before. They saw Jesus do miracles. They saw Jesus die and rise again. They saw it all happen. They were there. They were eyewitnesses. Another way you can prove the reliability of the Scriptures is by looking at who shared the fact that the tomb was empty. If you look in the Gospels, you look in the four Gospels, the people who, who, who say, who, who see, the first people to see that the tomb is empty are women. Women see this fact. And in fact, the Gospel, Luke 24, 11 says, uh, they go and tell the disciples and the story sounded like nonsense to the men. So they didn't believe it. Isn't that just typical men? You know, I don't, you know, you, maybe you think you saw that. I'm not sure I believe it. And today we can scoff at something like that. But that would have been the normal reaction of most people in that time if these group of women were to come to them and share this type of information. And they would have done so for two reasons. One, because it was a resurrection. It's not like this was a time where uh, they're more likely to believe something like this happened because resurrections were happening all the time. It was just as rare then as it is today. People never rose from the dead. So of course you're not going to believe something like this. It just didn't happen. There's a second reason why they wouldn't believe it, and that's because this testimony was from women. And today, while we've come a long way, or 
well, excuse me, while there's still a ways to go, we have come a long way to the point where the testimony of women is pretty much on par in our minds and our culture with the testimony of men. This was not so in this day. This Greek philosopher in the second century named Celsus, um, he believed he had the perfect argument for why Christianity wasn't true. And this is how his argument went. Christianity can't be true. Christianity has to be false, he argued, because the account of Jesus' resurrection that we have in the Bible is based on the testimony of women. So he argued, of course it can't be true because we know that women are hysterical, women are emotional. We can't trust them to be able to say the sober, factual truth. And in this time, this was a fairly convincing argument. So you see, if Christianity is a sham, if Christianity is fake, if it's all made up by these guys in the first century, Having, a, having women find the empty tomb is completely counterproductive. If they wanted to make up something that would be most believable to people, they would have a respectable man find the empty tomb, and then people might believe it. The best reason why in the Gospels it has women finding the empty tomb is because that's what actually happened. Women discovered the tomb was empty, that Jesus had risen from the dead, that Christianity is true. And we could go on and on, but suffice it to say, Christianity isn't just something that only ignorant simpletons can believe, and if you're in this enlightened age, you're intelligent, you can't possibly believe it. The Bible is true. Christianity is true. There's lots of evidence for it. We can trust it. So we can trust that it's true, but what is this Bible actually about? And for this, the old Sunday school answer works. Jesus. It's about Jesus. The Bible, the whole Bible, the Old and the New Testament, points to Jesus. And if you have your Bibles with you, you can turn with me to Acts chapter 8. And uh, we're going to read in there uh, about an encounter between Philip, one of the leaders of the early church, and an Ethiopian eunuch. Which, what a bummer, right? Uh, Ethiopian eunuch. Not the Ethiopian part, but the eunuch part is basically what I'm saying is a bummer. So in this story, it says this from verse 26 on. It says, As for Philip, an angel of the Lord said to him, Go south down the desert road that runs from Jerusalem to Gaza. So he started out and he met the treasurer of Ethiopia, a eunuch of great authority under the Candake, the queen of Ethiopia. The eunuch had gone to Jerusalem to worship, and he was now returning. Seated in his carriage, he was reading aloud from the book of the prophet Isaiah. This is in the Old Testament. The Holy Spirit said to Philip, go over and walk along beside the carriage. Philip ran over and heard the man reading from the prophet Isaiah. Philip asked, do you understand what you are reading? The man replied, how can I unless someone instructs me? And he urged Philip to come up into the carriage and sit with him. The passage of scripture he had been reading was this. He was led like a sheep to the slaughter. And as a lamb is silent before the shearers, he did not open his mouth. He was humiliated and received no justice. Who can speak of his descendants? For his life was taken from the earth. The eunuch asked Philip, tell me, was the prophet talking about himself or someone else? So beginning with this same scripture, Philip told him the good news about Jesus. Philip took him from the Old Testament and told him the good news about Jesus. And he did so because the whole Bible is about Jesus. It all points to him. 
Jesus said this himself in Luke 24, verse 44. The risen Jesus Christ tells his disciples, Today, or excuse me, when I was with you before, I told you that everything written about me in the law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms must be fulfilled. Now, this is huge because in this time, the Old Testament is split up into three different sections. One, the law, the law of Moses, the first five books of the Bible. Two, the prophets, which included many of the prophetic books and most of the historical books. And the writings, which included pretty much everything else, including the Psalms. So when Jesus says, Everything written about me in the law of Moses and the prophets and in the Psalms must be fulfilled. He's talking about all of it, not just portions of the Old Testament. He's saying the whole Old Testament is about me, and I have fulfilled it. It's all about Jesus. And if we don't know this, if we don't grasp this truth, we will never really understand the Bible. If we don't know this, we have changed the Bible message. We have made the Bible message into something that says, try harder, do your best, just do better, hopefully it works out for you. We have changed the Bible message to, do your best, hope it works out, good luck. It says this impossible standard that we have to reach in the Bible, but I hope you can do it. The Bible doesn't tell us about a set of principles that if we believe in them hard enough, we'll be saved. It doesn't tell us about a set of principles that if we follow them exactly enough, we will be saved. It doesn't tell us about a set of principles. The Bible tells us about a person. It tells us about Jesus Christ, the Son of God, born of a virgin, who lived the perfect life, never sinning, who was abandoned by his closest friends, who suffered, who was whipped and beaten, who was crucified, who was humiliated, who was forsaken by God the Father so that we would never have to be. He died and rose again from the grave in victory and power over death. Death can't hold him. So death can't hold us either, thanks to him. That is the Bible message. The Bible message isn't try harder. The Bible message is God loves you so much he died for you so that therefore you may inherit eternal life. The Bible message is not be holy so that God could be with you. The Bible message is God is with us already. So put your faith in him and he will make you holy. This change just revolutionizes everything about how we see the Bible. If you're reading in your shape and you come across the book of Job, you read about a righteous man who suffered unjustly for the sake of his friends. We should read that knowing that it also points to the righteous man. Jesus Christ, who suffered unjustly for the sake not only of his friends, but even his enemies, for all people. So when we, if we come across the Beatitudes, right, we, where it says, uh, blessed are the poor, for there is the kingdom of heaven, or blessed are they that mourn, for they shall be comforted, or blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. We should read these not only as marching orders, not only as a way to live, but seeing Jesus Christ having fulfilled them. It's not oh, I better be poor so I can receive the kingdom of heaven. Oh, I better mourn so I can be comforted. Oh, I better be pure so that I can see God. It's no Jesus Christ, though he was rich, became poor so that we could receive the kingdom of heaven. Jesus Christ mourned so that that we could be comforted. Jesus Christ was completely pure so that we could become friends of God. 
the Bible, all of it is about Jesus. That's why my, one of my favorite Bibles is this children's Bible that I read with my wife and daughter, the Jesus Storybook Bible. And in it, it says, every story whispers Jesus' name. Every story whispers Jesus' name. Ain't that true? The Bible, all of it, points to Jesus. And that is why it has power. That's why it never leaves us just as we are. Encountering the Bible always changes us. Continuing in the story, after Philip told the eunuch the good news about Jesus, everything changed. In verse 36, it says, As they rode along, they came to some water, and the eunuch said, Look, there's some water. Why can't I be baptized? He ordered the carriage to stop, and they went down into the water, and Philip baptized him. The Bible isn't only true, though it is, the Bible also changes us. It never leaves us just as we are. It always reaches down into our hearts and transforms us by the power of Jesus Christ. That's what it did for the Ethiopian eunuch. He encounters the holy word of God, and his life is transformed. He surrenders his life to Jesus. He gets baptized. His whole life is never the same after this moment. And the same can be true for us, and the same has been true for all of eternity. Many years ago, 1,500 years ago, there's a guy who lived who was named Augustine. And he's this renowned, famous Christian theologian. Everybody loves him. Catholics love him. Protestants love him. People still, to this day, read his writings so that they could get closer to God and know more about this God that they worship. He's this great, great Christian thinker, but he wasn't always that way. Before he became this renowned Christian theologian, he was just a heathen philosopher. He was no Christian. His, his way of living was, I'm going to do whatever I want to do, whatever I think is fun. I'm going to do whatever is most pleasing to me. I'm going to do whatever is most enjoyable to me. So he had lots of sex. Doesn't this sound pretty contemporary? This is 1,500 years ago. This could be going on. This is going on today. This is a temptation for all of us, myself included. And he, he knew this was not the right way to live. He knew there was something missing in his life. But... His prayer, if you could call it that, was, Lord, give me chastity and self-restraint, but don't do it just yet. Isn't that how we react to the things sometimes? God, I want to be holy. I want to be pure. I want to live for you. I want to go wherever you want to send me, but don't do it just yet. Let me have a little bit more fun first. Just hold on to his life. Thankfully, his mother was a Christian. And she prayed and prayed and prayed for him for a long time, over many years, and God heard her prayers. So one day, Augustine happened to be sitting underneath a fig tree, sobbing, weeping uncontrollably, despairing over his life. And this is how he puts it in his autobiography. He says, I was saying these things and weeping with agonizing anguish in my heart. Then I heard a voice From the household next door, the voice of someone, a little boy or girl, I don't know which, incessantly and insistently chanting, pick it up, read it, pick it up, read it. Immediately, my mood changed, and I started considering with great concentration whether children were accustomed to chanting something like that in any kind of game. I couldn't remember that I'd heard anything like it anywhere. I got control over the onslaught of my tears and got up, construing the chant as a straightforward divine command to open a book and read the chapter I first found there. So he goes and picks up a book 
of Paul's letters from the New Testament. And he says, I grabbed it and opened it and I read in silence the passage on which my eyes first fell. Don't clothe yourself in raucous dinner parties and drunkenness, not in the immorality of sleeping around, not in feuds and competition, but clothe yourself in the Master, Jesus Christ, and do not make provision for the body in its inordinate desires. I didn't want to read further. This is Augustine. There was no need. The instant I finished this sentence, my heart was virtually flooded with the light of relief and certitude, and all the darkness of my hesitation scattered away. From this day forward, from encountering the Bible forward, Augustine's life was completely changed. Jesus rescued him and saved him through his reading the Bible and changed him. Now, I'm, I'm not nearly as important as Augustine, um, but I relate to his story. Bless you. I grew up in a Christian home. Uh, my parents were Christians. We went to church every Sunday. Uh, I accepted Christ at a young age. I was baptized at the age of 15. I was in FCA. I said the team prayer before our basketball games. I was a Christian. But as I got older and was forced to make my faith my own, I started to drift. I started to do kind of like what Augustine's talking about. I started to live for myself, only wanting to do what was fun for me, what was pleasing for me, what was enjoyable for me in the moment. But I still considered myself a Christian, so I would rationalize it. I would say, you know what, Jesus Christ, he died for me. He's forgiven me already, so I can do whatever I want. I'll go to Jesus and ask for forgiveness, and then I'll keep going, do whatever I want. I was miserable. I knew I was missing something. I despaired. I thought there has to be something more to life than this. So one day I happened to be reading the Bible, this Bible, actually. And I came to 1 John chapter 2. And there it says, If you claim to know God, but you don't follow his commandments, you are a liar. That hit me. Because I claimed to know God. I was not following his commandments. So God was calling me a liar. And I could have been upset. I could have said, God, I'm not a liar and, and been in a rage and kept going the way I was going. But by God's grace, from this moment forward, from the moment where I read this Bible, my life was never the same. God changed me. He rescued me from my life of sin. God changed my life through the Bible. He changed Augustine's life through the Bible, and he can do the same for you. Right? The Bible's not just some random bestseller that's here today, gone tomorrow. Whether you've been a Christian all your life, whether you're new at this walk with Jesus thing, or whether you're not a Christian at all, the Bible is true, and it has power because it tells us about the only one who can save us, Jesus Christ. So I say to you what I say to myself, what Augustine heard, pick it up and read it. Pick it up and read it. Let's pray. Jesus Christ, we thank you 
so much for your grace and your mercy. We don't deserve it at all. We, we are sinners before you. We deserve eternity apart from you. We deserve the worst, but you have given us the best. Thank you, Jesus Christ, that you came and lived the life we should have lived. We should have lived the life. Thank you for coming to die a death on the cross that we deserved to die. And then rising again so that we could be raised to new life in you and be saved and redeemed and be made holy and rescued and be forgiven and walk with you all the days of our lives. Thank you, God the Father, for loving us. Thank you, God the Son, for dying for us. Thank you, God the Spirit, for living within us and making us holy. God, you are so, so good, and we cannot praise you enough. Maybe you're here and you've never experienced that saving grace from Jesus Christ. Maybe you don't know what this is about, what I've been talking about, this gospel of God's love and grace. Maybe you think, God can't save me. I've done too much. God, God saves sinners. God saves sinners. He takes people who are far from him, and he rescues them, no matter what they've done, no matter what you've done. He's for you, not against you. He loves you. He loves you so much that he suffered and died that you could experience life with him. And he's offering it to you today. So that's you. If you feel the Spirit tugging on your heartstrings, I invite you to be courageous and surrender to him. So that's you. you raise your hand, and as we close here, someone would love to pray with you to lead you through what it means to be saved and walk with Jesus. Is that you? Is there's anybody like that? Would you raise your hand? Somebody would love to pray with you after the service. For the rest of us. The takeaway from today cannot be Oh, no, now I have to do this in order for God to save me. Now I have to go home and read the Bible every single day so that God can save me. No, no, no. No, no, no. I pray that we would, instead of putting up, res putting up another law in our lives, another rule that we need to follow, Lord, I pray instead that you would fill us with gratitude for all that you've done. For you have done everything for us. You've given up everything that we could have eternal life. Lord, fill us with gratitude that we would obey you and surrender to you and then read your word not as some not as another rule to follow but as an act of gratitude for the god who died for me we thank you jesus christ for your gospel so i invite you to you get from where you're standing or coming up forward and kneeling let's surrender again our lives to god let's surrender again our hearts to god let's let the gospel of grace do a work in our hearts. And let's let the word of God transform.